Lisa the fox went to visit her friend Taralej. Her arm wasn't an arm. It was a wing, a silver gray wing. And that one sniff took me back to rainy day afternoons. We love stories! It's time for the apple seed, filled with stories for you and your family, all kinds of tales from all kinds of tellers. Since 2013, we've been bringing you tall tales and personal tales and fairy tales and historical tales and more, all kinds of tales from all kinds of tellers. I'm Sam Payne, and it's such a pleasure for me to bring these stories into your home and into your heart. And on today's episode of the show, you're going to hear a story from the Story Crafters, a classic tale with a Story Crafters twist that you're going to enjoy. The story's called The Grey Goose. You're going to hear from Fran Yardley with a piece called Letting the Ashes Go. And you'll hear from Priscilla Howe with a story called Fox and Hedgehog from a collection of animal stories... Uh, especially for young listeners. And uh, to begin here, we want to remember the words of Gandalf in The Lord of the Rings. He said, all we have to decide is what to do with the time that is given us, right? While we're here on this earth, we are confronted with so many choices and the freedom to make whatever decision we want. And hopefully while we're here, we make as many good decisions as we can, decisions that make us and those around us happy. And in today's stories, we're going to get to see different characters as they decide what to do with the time given to them and the effects these decisions have on the ones they love. And to introduce you to the first story that we're going to hear today, uh, I'm pleased to have in the studio with me Kendra Hanna, one of our assistant producers. Kendra, it's great to have you with me. Great to be here. Let's. We're, we're going to hear a story from the Story Crafters. I love these guys. Tell us about the Grey Goose. Yes, so this story comes from Scotland, and it is the story of a young princess who is in love with an enemy prince. And... She's very sad because she can't be with the one that she loves, but a very powerful magic woman sees her plight and decides to take action, and we'll see where that leads us. <laughs> the Storycrafters, of course, are the storytelling team of Barry Marshall and Jerry Burns, and it's always kind of a musical, rhythmic romp through kind of an, uh, an unusual take sometimes on these old Tales, and uh, it's always a pleasure to hear Barry and Jerry, and we're going to hear them now with the Gray Goose here on the Apple Seed. stood gazing out over the loch as the tides rushed in and rushed out but her eyes were not on the waters of the loch they were trained on the castle on the far distant side you see it was her greatest wish to be with the one who lived in that castle but she knew there was no way that she could be with the prince in that castle because just as the tides of that loch were far too treacherous for anyone to cross, so it was with the tides of hatred between her father, the king, on this side of the loch, and the king of that far castle, the prince's father. 
and their hatred for each other had spread and infected their two kingdoms so that there wasn't a single person, it seemed, living in those two kingdoms who didn't have a point of view, an opinion, some little bit of hatred in their heart for the other side. So all that she could do was stand there at the edge of the loch, singing her song, hoping against hope that the sound of it would be carried by the ocean breezes up and up into the windows of that far castle and into the ears of the one she loved. Oh, gray goose and turned and walked away from the loch up the hillside toward her own father's castle and when she reached the high point she turned and she looked back across the loch hoping almost against hope that she would see the prince walking out there on the moors near the castle wearing his silver gray hunting cloak but he wasn't there and as she looked at the prince's castle she didn't know it but somebody from his kingdom was looking at her but it wasn't the prince. It was a woman of power. But not a power like a king's power or a queen's power. The power of the woman that was watching her was a mystical power, a magical power, and a very dangerous power. And just like kings and queens have choices in how they use their power, so too did this woman of power. And she realized, as she heard the princess's song, that she was the only one in any kingdom with the power to make the princess's wish come true. And if you had been there, standing on the shore of that loch, looking at the woman of power, you would have seen that the hatred of those two kings had infected her heart and shone out through her eyes. The next morning, the princess woke early and she put on her favorite dress. Its color was silver gray, and it matched the prince's silver gray riding cloak exactly, just like the love they had in their hearts matched exactly. She danced merrily down the slope of that hill like a flower tumbling on a breeze. When she got to the edge of the loch, she stared over at the castle at the far distant side, and she sang her song. Oh, gray goose and and she danced dances around the princess. She sang songs around the princess. She chanted chants. She sprinkled the princess with potions and herbs and seasoning salt and patchouli oil and Worcestershire sauce. And when she was done, the princess wasn't standing next to the loch. The princess was lying flat on the ground. And she lay there for a while 
unconscious. And when she came to, she felt the strangest thing. It felt as if the sea breezes were wafting over her, around her, under her. And when she opened her eyes, she saw the two kingdoms spread out far down below her. She stretched out her arm to reach for a tree branch to pull her back down. And that was when she saw... Her arm wasn't an arm. It was a wing, a silver-gray wing. And if you had been there, standing on the shore of that loch, you would have seen a silver-gray goose fly up and up and up into the sky and off into the distance. It was about that time that the king and queen sat down to have their breakfast, and they waited very patiently for the princess to come. But she didn't come. So they sent servants up to her room to fetch her. But she wasn't there. They grew annoyed, and they sent servants all around the castle to find her. But she wasn't anywhere to be found. Then their annoyance changed to worry, and they sent servants all across the kingdom. But no one had seen her, no one had heard a thing. Their worry grew to panic, and they sent guards and soldiers out across the kingdoms, from one kingdom to the next, looking for any clue of where the princess might be. But this might take days, or weeks, or even months to finish. And one of the first castles they went to visit was the castle on the far side of the loch. Well, it turned out that that king had not taken the princess prisoner, but his son, the prince, heard that she was missing. So from that day onward, he spent most of his time walking along the edge of the loch, looking across at the princess's castle, hoping for a chance of seeing a flash or a gleam of her silver-gray dress. But he saw nothing. And as the days changed to weeks, and the weeks to months, and the guards and the soldiers, one after another, returned to the castle with the news that there was no news, the panic changed to mourning, because everyone knew that she must be dead. There were many who said that she was carried off by wolves. Others said that she had been taken by the fairy folk. And still others said she was carried off by the tides. If only those people had realized that they were the closest to being correct, if they only had understood which tide it was that had carried her off. But the prince didn't believe that his love was dead. In his heart of hearts, he knew she lived. And so early the next morning, he put on his silver-gray hunting cloak, and he set off into the woods on his fastest horse. He rode on and on. He rode for days. He never stopped to eat. He never stopped to sleep. He drank only the water that crossed his path in the streams. But you can only do that for so long, and after days of this, he was so hungry he knew he had to stop. Well, lucky for that prince, he was an excellent hunter. Any hare or deer that crossed his path usually ended up on his supper table that night. And so it shouldn't be a great surprise that when he looked up and saw a goose flying through the sky overhead, he notched an arrow to the bow and aimed it and let it sail through the air. It caught the goose in mid-flight. The goose tumbled down to earth, and as it fell, the prince was surprised to see a silver-gray flash from its wing. It fell to the ground. He walked over and... 
saw. It wasn't a goose. It was the princess. He knelt down next to her and he heard her last dying breath and in a rage he pulled the arrow from her side. He broke it into pieces. He shoved it into the ground. He lay down next to her. He kissed her on the lips and he died of a broken heart. As it is in the way of stories, when the prince gave his last dying breath, his breath gave life to the princess. And as she came to, she felt the strangest thing. It felt as if the breezes were wafting over her, around her, under her. She opened her eyes and she saw the prince lying on the ground far down below her. She stretched out her arm to reach for his. And she saw that her arm wasn't an arm. But a silver gray wing. And no one was there to see a silver-gray goose fly up and up and up into the sky and off into the distance. But if you had been there, you would have seen something grow out of the ground where the prince had shoved the arrow into the earth. A tree grew. It got larger and larger, it spread its seeds, more trees grew around it. It spread further and further, it covered Scotland, it was the forest of Caledon, it was there for a long time, it's gone now. There are a few trees here and there, you might see them if you go to Scotland. And if you're really lucky, you might just see a silver grey goose flying through the skies of Scotland, waiting for the tides to turn. Oh, gray goose and gander, oh, waft your wings together, and carry the Storytellers Barry Marshall and Jerry Burns, Ph.D. The Storycrafters, uh, that husband and wife duo, that's the name they go by. And a story with the Storycrafters is always, again, a musical, rhythmic adventure in tandem storytelling. It's always a pleasure to hear a Storycrafters tale. I've been listening to The Grey Goose, not only with you, but with one of our assistant producers, Kendra Hanna. Kendra, so great to have heard that story together. I love that story, and I just think that there are so many tragedies in the Scottish tradition, uh, and so many of them are just these beautiful love stories that that just break your heart a little bit. (laughs) These sad love stories, and this one with that song that keeps recurring, of course, to kind of break your heart. Uh, What a pleasure to hear that tale. Kendra, thanks for joining me. Thank you. And there's a lot more coming up on The Appleseed. You're listening to The Appleseed. We'll be back in a moment. Welcome back to The Appleseed. Here's Sam Payne. It's such a pleasure for me to be with you here on The Appleseed. A moment ago, you heard the story crafters, the storytelling team of Jerry Burns and Barry Marshall. 
a story called The Grey Goose. You heard from them. Fran Yardley coming up in just a minute with Letting the Ashes Go. And you'll hear a story called Fox and Hedgehog from Priscilla Howe from a collection of animal stories, especially for young listeners. But first, because we know that the sharing of memories can sometimes be the spark that ignites a story that you can share with the people that you love around the kitchen table or the living room or the campfire, here's a memory of mine. It's today's entry in the Radio Family Journal. I call it Chocolate Adventures. Here it is on the Appleseed. The Radio Family Journal with Sam Payne. A tiny little story for you and your family. Right when you need it. On the Appleseed. Okay, here we go. This story starts, I guess, with a gig. It's a Valentine's Day gig. I'm emceeing a fundraiser for a terrific local choir, and I'm a fan of these guys. The choir is called Cantorum, which, if you're wondering, is a Latin word. It's the genitive plural case of the word cantor, which means one who sings. So there you go. And generally, this choir performs this terrific chamber music, but once a year, they do a concert of love songs, and some of the songs are by the Beatles or by Rod Stewart or from Broadway musicals. It's a fun show. And I was super glad to do it, and I'm a sucker for great love songs, and they also have terrific refreshments. So while I was up on stage, Suzanne snapped a few photos of me on her phone, and I saw those photos, and I thought, geez, that guy has got to lose some weight. And I resolved to hit a diet and exercise regimen as soon as possible. And as you could probably have predicted, I put it off for a couple of weeks. Well... It's a couple of weeks later, and I've quit procrastinating, and I'm a single day into what I'm resolved will be a hugely successful diet, and I'm out to lunch with Suzanne, and okay, it's Chinese food, but I'm being really, really careful. I'm eating almost entirely veggies. So far, so good, right? But at the end of our meal, I crack open a fortune cookie. And you know how fortune cookies are these days. They're hardly ever, 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 you know, fortunes. They're usually little bits of advice. Advice like, let a smile be your umbrella, or treasure your friends, they make the hard times easier, or some other nonsense like that. It's kind of a pet peeve of ours, really, about fortune cookies, if you want to know. But this one, this one actually has a fortune in it. Not just advice, but a magical fortune. It says, soon... An adventure will come your way. Ah, an adventure. Hot dog. Well, just what I'm looking for. And we finish up lunch, and Suzanne runs me back to the Appleseed Studios, and I'm just diving back into work when I get a text message. It's a representative of the choir for whom I had emceed the Valentine's concert. And she's texting me from the lobby of the Appleseed Studios, and she says, I brought you something. Do you have a moment? Well, something. Of course I have a moment. So I leave my desk and I head down to the lobby, wondering what the something might be. And on my way down there, I'm thinking that this diet thing is actually going pretty well and that I feel pretty good even one day in and that I think I can keep this up and drop a few pounds and, well, won't that be nice? And I'm thinking about this choir and thinking that if they have me back to MC next year, I'll be looking svelte indeed. Well, such were my thoughts as I came into the lobby. And there she is, the representative of the choir. And she's sitting on one of the lobby couches. But when she sees me, she leaps up and she comes over to me with something in her hands. Something big. And I have no idea what it is. But she says, 
We're super happy that you could come and join us for our concert. I'm super happy too, I say. And that's true, I am super happy. Like I said, I like the choir, and I was honored to be asked to perform with them. And she said, we wanted to give you a little thank you gift for being our MC. And I'm thinking, awesome! I'm thrilled. I wonder what it could be. And she shows me. And what she's holding in her hand is a stack of boxes. In the box on the top of the stack, there are 3.5 ounces of chocolate truffles. And in the box below that, there are 1.25 pounds of assorted chocolate caramels with nuts. And in the box below that, there are 3 pounds of almond toffee. That, folks, is 4.75 pounds of candy. On the second day of a diet, to which I am doggedly, ferociously, hopefully, wishfully committed. And of course I'm thankful. I mean, it's a terribly, terribly thoughtful gesture. And we chat for a minute in the lobby, and then, as I head back to my office, she calls out, I hope you didn't make a New Year's resolution or anything. And I laugh, I'm afraid, a little weakly. And now, those boxes are sitting on my desk, even as I am talking to you. All I can say for now is that resisting the call of this candy had better not be the adventure predicted by my lunchtime fortune cookie. It's not the adventure I had imagined at all. So far, my resolve is strong. But man, these chocolates sure do look good. The Radio Family Journal of Sam Payne. A tiny little story for you and your family. Right when you need it, on the Appleseed. <laughs> Thanks for joining me for an entry in the Radio Family Journal. And uh, if you're a chocolate lover, maybe you've got a story or two about either giving in or resisting a favorite treat. We always hope that the stories that we bring you here on the show spark memories and thoughts for you that you can share with the people that you love. There's a lot more coming up. You're going to hear from Fran Yardley and Priscilla Howe. But first, how about a conversation with a friend? Great stories come into our lives in so many ways, through the films that we see, through the books that we love, the songs that we remember, and of course, through the tales that get told from teller to listener, sometimes over generations and generations. And one of the ways that great memories and thoughts and stories get down inside us is through the meals that we share. We're thrilled to be joined by Reggie Carpenter, a longtime friend of the show. She's joining us from her home. And Reggie, it's so great to talk with you. We're going to talk a little bit about food, aren't we? I cannot wait, Sam. You know, the, the name of my book is Where There's Smoke, There's Dinner. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and we could, you know, we we talk with a lot of people who say, "Oh yeah, if only I could if only I could taste such and such a dish of my grandmother's or my mother's every every day of my life." You know, your your uh, relationship with food when you were a kid was a little different, wasn't it? My mother was a horrible cook. I mean, the end in in her defense, she had five kids. She ran a grocery store. My dad was often in the hospital. And so the fact <laughs> that we ate it all was, was great. <laughs> but um, one of the things that I remember growing up was like, if 
And I don't know if this was because I was the fifth child, but I distinctly remember that as soon as I could reach the countertop, no food was provided. It was like, okay, kid, here's the drawer, here's the fridge, go for it. <laughs> but we had, and I don't know if you grew up with this, Sam, but we had a certain litany of food that would happen. On Sundays, we had roast beef. Then we would have, uh, on Wednesdays, we always had liver and onions along with beets to make it even worse because it was good for the blood. And Fridays, of course, we had fish or scrambled eggs because we, Catholic, we couldn't eat meat on Friday. Uh, In between there, we would have hamburgers, meatloaf, uh, goulash. So it was not great. A lot of things that I remember was... um, my mom loved candy. She mm-hmm. loved candy. And she would have candy bowls and candy jars out. And we had this little dog named Cricket. And Cricket liked it was he, Cricket was a little chihuahua. Yeah. And Cricket Cricket also liked candy. And he was just tall enough to put his feet against the coffee table and then lick each piece of candy (laughs) my mom liked those ribbon candies you know yeah sure ones with the jellies inside and she loved those and she would often grab a handful of them between the kitchen and our grocery store when she heard the bell ring the bell meant that that we had a customer so as she was going by the coffee table she would grab a handful of the candy and she would always say why is this candy so sticky Not knowing that the dog had paid a visit to yeah, the table. I would never say a word. I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> but, um, oh, my mom, she she did have some specialties. Like uh, Thanksgiving dinner was always wonderful. She would make a like a 25-pound turkey. And she would get up early. And uh, I would come down the beige vinyl carpet runner. And... <laughs> And she would be chopping up the onions and the peppers really, really fine to go into the stuffing. And, oh, that meal was really fun. And what was really fun about it wasn't necessarily the food, although that was fun. We would have um, olives, black olives. And Sam, did you play with your black olives when you were little? And they were Oh, good heavens. Yeah, sure. Put them on your fingers. You bet. Oh, my gosh. They were puppets. And so we would, you know, be playing with those. My mom would be saying, oh, leave the olives alone. (laughs) But what we would do is we would, my sister Mary and I, we would hide underneath the table. And my father loved the skin. So my mother would always make sure that this turkey skin was really crispy. Yeah. And he had a long, 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 long carving knife. And we would reach our hands up. And <laughs> this sounds horrible. <laughs> my father would pretend to cut our fingers off. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> and he'd say, you better leave my turkey alone. And then, you know, of course, of course, he wouldn't. You know, not, we've all still got our digits. Yeah, but, right. Um, but it was always so funny, so funny. And then the food dropping off the table, and then cricket would get it. And uh, <laughs> you know, my dad's my dad's palate dictated a lot of our food. Sure, and, I imagine. Yeah, you know, my dad loved. Uh, he loved macaroni and margarine. He loved um, white bread. And in the spring, of course, we would go um, bullhead fishing, but down south they call them catfish. 
but we call them boilhead. And um, I remember one time, of course, we would have fish in, in you know, all summer. And yeah. But I remember one time I got a, a, a big bone caught in my throat and I was starting to choke and I, I jumped up out of, I, I was probably seven. I was pretty little. I, was, I jumped up out of my chair and I was running around the table and my dad grabbed me, balled up a, a piece of Wonder Bread, stuck it in my mouth, plugged my nose so that I had to swallow it. Huh caught the bone and I was okay. And then he said, finish your meal. Oh, good heavens. What, what a method uh, uh, and what presence of mind to kind of respond to an emergency yeah, in that way. Wow. First time. You know, it's, it's so interesting. We began this conversation with you talking about, you know, your mom being a bad cook and things like that. And yet all of these w wonderful food memories, the bad food, is affecting you now in a kind of a positive way, right? I mean, there's yeah. a, your, your, your head and your heart are full of these memories that you now perceive as kind of wonderful memories, even though at the time you weren't enjoying eating the food, you know? What a pleasure it's been to be joined by Reggie Carpenter. Reggie, thanks for joining us. Thank Great stories come into our lives in so many ways. Such a pleasure to chat with Reggie Carpenter about family meals. And there's a lot more coming up. You want to stick around for Letting the Ashes Go by Fran Yardley. That's what's coming up on The Apple Seed. I'm Sam Payne. You're listening to The Apple Seed. We'll be back in a moment. Welcome back to The Apple Seed. Here's Sam Payne. It's such a pleasure for me to be with you on today's episode of The Appleseed. There's a lot coming up from Fran Yardley and Priscilla Howe. If you're just joining us, at the top of the hour, we heard a story from the Storycrafters, the storytelling team of Jerry Burns and Barry Marshall, a story called The Gray Goose. And, uh, of course, we heard an entry in the Radio Family Journal about chocolates. Oh, good heavens. And we had a conversation with a friend, with Reggie Carpenter, a longtime friend of the show, who talked about family meals. There's a lot more coming up from, uh, you're going to hear from Priscilla Howe in a little bit with an animal story. But first, how about a story called Letting the Ashes Go? This is from Fran Yardley. And Fran is well known for her ability to tell touching and evocative stories with a kind of grace and a delightful sense of humor. And in this true tale from her life, Fran relates stories surrounding her father, both before and after his death. And these stories are related with great feeling, humor, and love. This is just one of those tales, one of those chapters in the story of her relationship with her father. Let's listen as Fran and her family spread his ashes. The story is called Letting the Ashes Go, here on The Appleseed. My dad had a favorite expression, onward and upward. When we were little kids, going on a long car trip, he would come in early in the morning, the day we were going to go, before it was even light, throw back the covers and say, time to get up, onward and upward. One day, I was going to learn how to canter. My father stood in the center of the ring. I was riding on our most dependable horse, trotting around. My dad said, okay, make him canter. I kicked him in the ribs. I said, 
and for one second I was on top of the world. And the next second I was in the dirt. All of me except for one foot that was caught in the stirrup being dragged around by the horse. My father rushed over, stopped the horse, picked me up, dusted me off. Are you all right? No, Dad, I'm not. This really hurts. I don't like doing this anymore. He looked at me. Nah, you're all right. Onward and upward. No, Dad, really, I don't want to do this anymore. I want to go back in the house. He pointed at the horse. Onward and upward. And I knew I was going to get back on that horse. And later I was glad I did. Onward and upward. In August of 1987, I drove up to Muskoka in Canada. I was going to Eagle Island, where our family always went for vacation. Everyone was there. My mom, my two daughters, my brothers and sisters, cousins, everyone except my dad. He had died the previous May, and we were all gathering at Eagle Island to honor his last wish, which was to have his ashes scattered on the waters of Little Lake Joseph. We were all on the dock saying, well, how are we going to do this? No one really had an answer, so we decided to wait until after dinner and then head out onto the lake with Dad's ashes. I dove into the water and had a swim, went up and got dressed for dinner. And then I ran in my moccasined feet across the rooted path that I had known since childhood to the log cabin where my mom and dad always stayed. I bounded onto the porch. Hey, Mom, are you in there? I heard her muffled voice from inside. Franny, is that you? I came into the living room, looked across into the hallway. There was a light from the window shining down onto my mother. She was on her hands and knees, in a half-state of dress, her front half buried in the hallway cupboard. Uh, Mom? W what are you doing? She emerged from the cupboard. Well, the funeral home gave me your father in this jar, and it just looked so funereal. I, I was looking for something else to put him in to go out in the lake. What do you think of this? She pulled out of the cupboard this beautiful old Indian basket. I took it from her. I took the lid off. Oh, and that one sniff took me back to rainy day afternoons when hidden birthday presents and crayons and paper and books and games had all come out of that cupboard. This'll do just fine, Mom. Good. She started padding towards the bedroom. I followed her. Just inside the bedroom door, she stopped. <sighs> oh, dear. What is it, Mom? Well, I, I wanted to say something about your father when we go out on the lake, but I just don't know if I can do it. What is it you want to say? Here, this. She handed me a piece of paper. Ah, there was a poem on it. I knew it well. It was from the Bhagavad Gita, or the Song Celestial. 
My grandmother had copied it down into her poetry book many years earlier. My mother had put it in hers, I had in mine, and my two daughters had copied it down in their books. This'll be great, Mom. You can do it if you want to. All right. She turned around and started padding towards the bathroom, and then she stopped again. What is it, Mom? Well, do you think Dad will sink or float? I mean, I just don't want his ashes floating back to the island with the dogs swimming around in the boats and the kids and everything. Right. Well, um, there is one thing we could do to find out. We could put some water in the sink and put some ashes in and see what happens. I looked at her to see how she would take this. All right, let's do it. She turned around and went in the bathroom and opened up the top of the bureau and brought out this lime green jar. Here, you do it. I can't. I took the jar from her. It was weird to hold what amounted to a two-pound jar and know my father was in there. I took the lid off, and I was really surprised. I had been expecting to see fine, brown, dusty ashes, the kind you see in the bottom of a fireplace. But these weren't like that at all. They were slivers of bone, little tiny ones and some that were bigger, some long and narrow, some shorter and fatter, light and dark gray, some almost black, some almost white. Some of them were shiny. I reached down and touched one. It was cool. My mother had put the plug in the sink really tight and then filled it up with water. I scooped up a few of the ashes with my fingers and sprinkled them on the top of the water. And we both watched as they immediately sank to the bottom. Well, there's your answer, Mom. Good, she said. We both looked at the ashes in the sink. Now what, she said. We don't want part of Dad going down the drain, do we? Good heavens, no, let's get him out of there. We both dipped our hands into the water and scooped up every last ash and reunited Dad. Then my mom got dressed and we headed over to the house for dinner. There were about 25 of us who had gathered for this event, and it was a typical Foreman family meal. Everybody talked, nobody listened. There was this one moment that was very awkward before we sat down to eat, when we all wondered who should sit at the head of the table where my dad had always sat. We all have a different memory of who ended up sitting there. After dinner, we headed down to the boathouse. This was my dad's domain. He spent all his time in this boathouse. He had a big sign that said, Eagle Island Boatworks. You wreck em, we fix em. David G. Foreman, proprietor. 
And the kids all took him at his word. We would go out in a boat and run up on a rock or do something terrible and bring it back, and Dad would always fix it up again. We climbed into two beautiful old boats that had belonged to my grandmother, one brother at each wheel. I sat in the boat that my mother was in, in the bow. And my brother started backing the boats out of the boathouse, all of us saying, well, where are we going? What are we going to do? And my brother David had the perfect answer. It will be revealed. We started putt-putt-putting really slowly, heading towards the west, watching the sky as it began to get pink with the sunset. And it wasn't long before we approached Cliff Island, which was right across from Eagle Island. Cliff was the island that my great-grandfather had first come to in the late 1800s. We got just off the point of Cliff, when all of a sudden, out of the water, popped two loons. And then a third one popped up, and they started calling back and forth to each other, back and forth. My mother said, Do you think that's a sign? We all agreed that it was. My brothers turned off the engines and the boats floated together so we could hold on to each other. We sat there for a while listening to the loons and to some of the more talented members of my family trying to blow hot air through their hands to sound like the loons. And then my mother stood up, cradling that ancient weathered Indian basket. I wondered if she was going to be able to say anything. And then she spoke. Mourn not for those that live, nor those that die. Her voice was shaking. Nor I, nor thou, nor any one of these ever was not, nor ever will not be. The sky was getting scarlet. Forever and forever afterwards, all that doth live, lives always. I found myself sitting ramrod straight. If I did that, I thought maybe my strength would feed into her. Never the spirit was born, the spirit shall cease to be never. Never was time, it was not. The only sound was the lapping of the waves against the boats. Birthless and deathless and changeless remaineth the spirit forever. Death has not touched it at all, dead though the house of it seems. My mom's voice seemed to be getting stronger. Nay. But as one layeth his worn-out robes away, And taking new ones saith, These will I wear to-day. A loon called, another one answered, So putteth by the spirit lightly its garb of flesh, And passeth to inherit a residence afresh. My mom took a deep breath. 
And then she took the top off of the Indian basket and tipped it towards the water. The slivers of bone cascaded down, and when they hit the water, it was as if they turned into silver, a whirlpool of silver that went around and around and down and down. And we all called out, Bye, Dad! Bye, Dad! And we knew he wasn't going down. He was going onward and upward. We listened to the loons. We watched the sky as it faded. And then my brothers started up the boats. We were heading not back to Eagle Island yet, but over to Seven Pines, a small island that we went to every Sunday for a picnic. My dad loved going there. Whenever we went, the rest of us would cart the picnic things up to the lean-to. My dad would go to the big old stone fireplace and lay down kindling and wood and light a match. Then he'd pour himself a drink. He'd stand there stirring the fire and sipping his drink and look out at the dead calm, and he'd say, Not bad for a crummy day in Muskoka. So we were going to Seven Pines to light a bonfire in his honor the biggest bonfire Seven Pines had ever seen. As our boat came through the channel around Bunny Island, Seven Pines came into view, and my brother Jim said, Look at that up there, look! What we all said. We looked up ahead, and there in the water, right by the shore of Seven Pines, as if they were waiting for us, were two loons. The next summer I came up to Eagle Island to visit my mom. The first morning I came down to the dock really early to go for a swim. There was a mist hugging the water. I slipped my still bed-warm body into the cool water. Goosebumps everywhere. I started doing the breaststroke like my mom always did. I heard a noise off to my right. I looked through the mist, and there, in the distance, in that very spot where we had put Dad's ashes the summer before, there was a loon. I looked at that loon, and he looked at me, and I could just imagine him opening his beak and saying, not bad for a crummy day in Muskoka. Yardley with Letting the Ashes Go here on the Appleseed. Sometimes in the story of the passing of a loved one, you can hear and discover all of the love and all of the importance and all of the joy in that 
relationship. It's certainly a difficult story to tell sometimes, but sometimes in the telling we can find healing. It's a pleasure to hear that story from Fran Yardley. And the last story that we're going to bring you today comes from Priscilla Howe. It's a Bulgarian fairy tale. And in this story, best friends Fox and Hedgehog find themselves in a bit of a bind when they sneak into the vineyard to eat the delicious ripe grapes there. And when Fox gets stuck in a trap, will she, with all her ideas, be able to get herself out or will help come from another source? Find out in Fox and Hedgehog, told for you by Priscilla Howe. We're happy to bring it to you here on The Appleseed. I'd like to tell you this story from Bulgaria. It's the story of the fox and the hedgehog. In Bulgaria, the word for fox is Lisitsa, but in stories, she's called Lisa. And the hedgehog, the word for hedgehog is Taralej. One day, Lisa the fox went to visit her friend Taralej, the hedgehog. She went over to his house. She said, hey, 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 Taralesh, let's go to the vineyard and get some grapes. The grapes are so ripe right now. They're so perfect. Let's go get some grapes. Taralesh said, oh, Lisa, I don't think it's a good idea because the man digs pit traps, and, and, and we could get caught in a trap. Oh, no problem, Taralesh, no problem. I have 220 ideas for getting out of a trap. I can get out of any trap. 220 ideas right up here and for how to escape from any trap. Taralesh said, oh, I, I only have three ideas. Oh, Taralesh, come on, let's go. Don't worry about it. I, I've got all the ideas. Come on, let's go. So they went to the vineyard, and they were picking those grapes. The grapes were perfect. They were so juicy, so delicious, when all of a sudden... Boom! Lisa fell into a trap. Tadalesh, help me out! Help me out! I, I'm, I'm, I'm caught! I, help me out! Help me out, please! Tadalesh said, Lisa, what about your 220 ideas? I can't think at a time like this! Come on, help me out! Okay, I'll, I'll give you my first idea. When the man comes, pretend to be gentle and tame, and he'll, he'll pick you up, but he'll loosen his grip, and you can take off. Taralej left. The man came along. He said, look at that fox. My wife is going to have a beautiful fox fur jacket. He reached in. He got Lisa out of that trap. She wound her tail around his arm. She rubbed her face on his hand. He said, oh, you're a nice one. Hmm. And he let loose his grip just a little bit, and Lisa took off. She ran home. A few days went by. And Lisa went back to visit Taralesh. Hey, 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 Taralesh, hey, hey, let's go to the vineyard and get some grapes. The grapes are so good. Remember they were, they were so good? Lisa, I don't think it's a good idea. Remember we, we went the other day, you got caught in a trap? Hey, no problem, Taralesh, no problem, because I, I have 220 ideas for getting out of any trap. I can get out of a trap, no problem. I can escape from any trap. Oh, Lisa... I only have two ideas left. Oh, don't worry about it, Tadalej. Come on, let's go, let's go, let's go. So they went to the vineyard, and they were picking those grapes. The grapes were still juicy and delicious when, boom, Lisa fell into a trap. Tadalej, help me out, help me out. I can't get out. Help me out, help me out. Lisa, what about your 220 ideas? I can't think at a time like this. Come on, help me out. Oh, 
Okay, I'll, I'll give you my second idea. When the man comes, he's going to be mad. I think he'll probably hit you with his stick. So you should pretend to be dead. And then he'll, after he puts you in his wagon, you can run away. Tatarlej went home. The man came along. You, you are not going to escape from me. He picked up a stick and cracked that fox right over the head. She almost didn't have to pretend to be dead. The man put her in his wagon, and he rode off. And after a little bit, she escaped. A few days went by. She went back to visit Tatarlej. Hey, hey, Tatarlej, hey, hey, remember the grapes? <laughs> Those grapes were so good. I love grapes. Well, let's go to the vineyard and get some grapes. Oh, Lisa, I don't think it's a good idea. You got caught in a trap twice. Hey, hey, Tatarlej, no problem, because I've got 220 ideas for getting out of any trap. I couldn't think the other day, but hey, today I am sharp. I'm ready. I can get out of any trap. 220 ideas right here in my head. Oh, oh, Lisa... I only have one idea left. Oh, Tatterledge, ledge, don't worry about it. Come on, let's go. You always worry about everything. Come on, let's go, let's go, let's go. And so they went to the vineyard, and they were picking those juicy, delicious grapes when Tatterledge fell into a trap. Lisa, help me out. I can't get out. Lisa, please, please help. Oh, Tatterledge, I wish I could help you, but I've got to save my ideas for myself. I've got 220 ideas, but I've got to save them for myself in case I get caught someday. Oh, I see how it is. But, but Lisa, we've been good friends for a long time. W won't you at least give me just a little kiss on the nose? How could the fox refuse that? She leaned into that pit trap, and the hedgehog jumped up but instead of kissing the fox, that hedgehog bit the fox right on the nose and held on tight. The fox threw the hedgehog right out of the trap, but her nose hurt so much, she twirled around and around and around, and boom, she fell into the trap. Tatalish, help me out, help me out, I can't get out, help me out, please help me out. Tatalish said, oh, Lisa, I just used my third idea. I haven't got any left. I can't help you out. You'll have to use one of your 220 ideas. And Tatarlej went home. Lisa ran around and around and around in that trap, trying to think of her 220 ideas for getting out of any trap. And I'm sorry to tell you that the end of this story is that that man's wife had a beautiful fox fur jacket. Fox and Hedgehog here on the Apple Seed, a story told for you by Priscilla Howe. That's from a collection of stories called Chickens and Other Stories for Young Listeners. It's been a great hour. We've heard that story from Priscilla Howe. Before that, we heard Letting the Ashes Go, a story told for you by Fran Yardley from a collection of stories called Beyond My Father's Shadow. Heard a conversation with our friend Reggie Carpenter, an entry about chocolate in the Radio Family Journal. And at the top of the hour, The Grey Goose, a story told for you by the Story Crafters, the storytelling team of Barry Marshall and Jerry Burns. Join us online at byuradio.org slash Appleseed for not only the hour filled with stories that you've come to enjoy from the Appleseed, but also mini-episodes of the show. We call them 
them extras, just a single story long, just a few minutes in case you've only got a few minutes and you want to fill those few minutes with a great story. If you go there today, you'll hear a story called Teeny Tiny by Betty Ann Wiley. It's a story for you to discover and enjoy. Our producer is Jeff Simpson. I'm Sam Payne. Thanks so much for joining us on The Appleseed. Thanks for joining us for an hour of stories, music, and conversation made for you and your family and brought to you by The Appleseed. The show is a production of BYU Radio. We'll see you next time. Hey, it's Sam. Just one more thing before we go. There's so much produced by BYU Radio that you're sure to enjoy, including Treasure Island 2020, the swashbuckling time-traveling pirate podcast in 10 parts. You can find it by Googling it. We'll see you next time. (laughs) 